Good morning. morning. Y'all doing well? Nice. Well, I hope you are still doing well after I tell you what we're preaching on today. Uh, My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank y'all so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, If you got a Bible with you, we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 19. Uh, while you turn there or load your app, I'll, I'll ramble as usual. Uh, we're going to look at uh, one or two parallel passages, but for the most part, we're going to find ourselves in John 19 this morning. Um, as you're flipping through the pages, uh, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. Fill out a Connect card, drop it in the offering basket, or take it to the Connect desk. Uh, and again, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, in addition to that, if you are new or you're visiting and you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles on the rows where you guys are seated. That is our gift to you. Please take one. Uh, and if you know someone that would benefit from having a Bible, then definitely take one and hook them up. For the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through uh, this series in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is this uh, ancient creed that really summarizes the Christian faith. And what we have been doing is kind of taking it apart piece by piece and seeing how the creed points us to the pages of Scripture. And uh, today, what we're going to be looking at is uh, something that is kind of unpopular, not exactly everyone's favorite topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about hell. Uh, because this is the section of the creed where there is some controversy in this statement. And so uh, this section of the creed, this topic can be a little uncomfortable for people to walk into and dive into for a variety of reasons. Uh, And really the truth is that as we walk into this section of the creed, we're going to uh, be unable to unpack everything. I have about 30 to 40 minutes, and I'm going to give you this, this fire hydrant, this, this fire hose of, of information regarding this statement, but at the same time pointing, hopefully pointing us to the person and work of Christ. The reason we're looking at this topic is because we're coming to the place in the creed that states, he, that is Jesus, descended to the dead. An older version of the Apostles' Creed, in fact, one of the first versions that was surfaced in the church was around the third century, and that's when uh, he descended to the dead was actually he descended into hell. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with that phrase. And so that phrase really came to fruition around the third century, uh, and it was made by the church, and so the church kept it. But in addition to that, we don't necessarily know what the original statement of it was. Uh, But nevertheless, that statement, he descended to the dead or he descended into hell, that is Christ, has been one of great conversation and great controversy at the same time. And uh, so this is kind of one of those sermons where I'm going to try to, you know, my best to either swing or hang. And so as we move forward, we're going to investigate and unpack uh, this, this statement Before taking a look at our text in John 19, before taking a look at our text this morning, I actually want to walk through a couple of myths about hell. Uh, Because at the end of the day, even though we're going to be talking about the person and work of Jesus and the beauty and glory of his cross, we're going to be talking about hell. And so I think it's good to start there. And as we start there, I'd like to unpack a couple of myths. As we look at some of those myths, I'm reminded of kind of like my upbringing and how my theology or even my ideology of what hell is came from a lot of literature, pop culture, 
movies, film, things like that. And so I'm very, I'm very, uh, I don't want to say excited, right? In the sense of, but I do want to share some of those experiences with y'all. But before I do that, before we dive into these myths, let me actually pray for our time and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. God, as we begin our time and we look at your word, I pray that one, you would be glorified. Two, that even though we are walking into this topic, this discussion, this doctrine of hell, that it would actually not take away from your glory. That even as we uh, encounter this topic, that it would point us to the person and work of your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be present and at work among us, uh, working in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters and those who are visiting God, I pray that you would set me aside and there would ultimately be you at work. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned, growing up, when it came to the concept, the idea of hell, my theology, if you will, my ideology, my concept of hell was shaped by literature. It was shaped by uh, TV and film. It was shaped by ongoing comic book adventures. Uh, And that's really where I found myself in light of what hell was. For instance, and we haven't uh, gone into the myths yet. For instance, I remember in high school, I read... um, Inferno. Anybody ever read Inferno by, by Dante Alinghetti, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? I remember reading that in uh, my senior year of high school, writing a paper on that, uh, and I was just tripping out. Because if you haven't read the book, not that I would necessarily recommend it, but nevertheless, it is a pretty fancy read. As I remember going through the book, he goes on to discuss his encounter with Satan and then the nine circles of hell and then subcategories of these circles and specific sinners and whatever, man. I remember reading that, walking away saying oh my gosh, that's the last thing I ever want to think about. But in addition to that, I remember when the movie Constantine came out with Keanu Reeves, right? Anybody ever seen that one? That one was a mix of like Roman Catholic tradition with mysticism and folklore, and it was all wrapped into one. It was also based on a comic, but nevertheless, it was all wrapped into one. And I remember just looking at the cinematography and thinking, oh my gosh, that's real, uh, not really having any concept. Like my only two experiences were, were Dante's Inferno and then Constantine. And so as I'm looking at this, it's like, it is really bad. Hell is horrible. Um, and then at the same time, um, I, growing up with brothers, I'm one of four. Uh, and so all my brothers were like raised in the eighties. And even though I'm a nineties kid, I was raised with like 80s, uh, oh, I don't know, like an 80s environment. And so I remember watching Legend, the 1985 version with Tom Cruise and Tim Curry, right? And uh, what was that? It's so good, right? But Tim Curry comes out as as Satan, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Satan's a bodybuilder. That's the last thing I ever want to see. I have had body issues since, right? Like, uh, Like I remember watching that movie with my brother and seeing darkness come out, and it was like, oh my lord. So that was, those, those were my concepts of, of hell. I'm curious as to maybe some of the things that you've experienced. However, after becoming a Christian and, uh, man, reading the pages of Scripture, I encountered several conversations with other Christians about specifically hell. And over the years, I've encountered several eh, myths, certain beliefs, about hell. And so what I'd like to do is walk through some of those before we dive into John 19. Maybe you have heard of some of these. One of the first uh, myths is that hell is Satan's kingdom, right? 
Like if you've ever watched the movie, this is what I think of when I, when I hear that, hell is Satan's kingdom. If you've ever watched the movie Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman, he portrays Winston Churchill after coming into, uh, becoming the, the prime minister of England during World War II. And one of the areas of that movie or one of the, the, the locations that it takes place in is in his like war room. And in his war room, he has a bunch of soldiers and secretaries, and they have headphones on because they're communicating with other men on the front lines. They have these big maps, and they're trying to be strategic and come up with the best offensive uh, uh, toward, toward Germany, Nazi Germany. And so the, everybody's at work. Everybody is strategizing. Everybody is communicating. Everybody is doing something regarding the offensive. And so when I think about the myth that hell is Satan's kingdom, I tend to think about, yeah, like, Hell is not his war room, okay? There aren't like demons in hell and they have headphones on and they're communicating with other demons who are on the front lines and there are these maps. And the reason I say that is because in Revelation 20, we see that Satan and his demons are thrown into this place called the lake of fire. If anything, hell is not his kingdom. It is not where Satan reigns. It is his judgment, Hell is his ruin. Hell is his doom. And according to scripture, that is certain. Further, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter says that our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Hell is not where he reigns. Hell is not his war room. Hell is his doom. And on the cross, through the person and work of Jesus, his death and ultimately resurrection conquers hell, Satan, and sin. Hell is not where he reigns. Number two, hell is temporary. It's another myth. What I mean by hell being temporary is that that hell is kind of like jail, right? Like, let's say, for instance, you live 90 years, and it's like, right, you're going to serve, I don't know, 120 years. Kind of like jail, right? Another version of that is that hell's kind of like a purgatory, kind of like waiting room. Like, if you ever, like, when you were in high school, do you remember advisory? Everybody hated advisory. It's also known as homeroom, right? Like, you're just waiting, right? Just waiting for that bell so you can get out. Hated that right? And that's the whole point of hell, right? Hell is kind of like a, it's kind of like jail. It's temporary. At some point you're going to get out, whether you believe it in the sense of you're going to serve a certain sentence or at the same time, someone's going to buy you out in the land of the living, right? The problem with this view, oh, there's several things, but the problem with this view is that if we look at hell as something temporary, then we diminish the holiness of God. See, one of the biggest characteristics or attributes of God is his infinite holiness. And so when we think of hell as something that is temporary, we diminish his holiness and we excuse our sin. Because if we view it like advisory, we're saying, man, as long as I serve my time, then I'm good to go. 
I get some redemptive peace. Or if you look at it in the sense of some purgatory type of view, like, man, I'll be serving my time, but I'm hoping someone's going to buy me out. It diminishes the holiness of God and his hatred for sin. And it excuses our sin. So that's a myth. The next one. Or better yet, let me keep going with that one. So it diminishes his holiness. We forget that sins are actually a cosmic offense. And we also forget that in hell, you don't cease to be a sinner. In hell, you continue to be a sinner. You are still continuing in unbelief. You are continuing in idolatry. And you are continuing in rebellion. It doesn't stop. Number three, hell, I've heard this one. Hell is the absence of God. Maybe some of you have heard that. Hell is the absence of God. Well, what's the problem with that? Uh, Psalm 139 was just read a a couple of minutes ago. And Psalm 139 goes on to talk about, man, it doesn't matter where I go, I find you, God. Like, you're there. The psalmist is saying, if I make my bed in Sheol, which is the Hebraic word for hell, if he says, I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I try to hide from you, you're there. It is not the absence of God. In fact, it is the presence of God. But it's what that presence is all about that makes it terrifying. Because in hell... It's not so much the absence of God. It's the absence of God's grace. It's the absence of God's mercy. It's the absence of God's patience. Right? When you read through Exodus, it says that, man, he, uh, uh, he is slow to anger. He is steadfast in his love and he is faithful. And all of that is true. In the context of hell, that ends. It's done. It is the absence of God's grace, mercy, and patience, and it is the exercising of his justice and righteousness. Hell is where God is judge and not father. However, the gospel hope is found in Jesus that God draws near to us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. For those that belong to Jesus, God draws near to them as Father. That is the hope of the gospel. Number four. Sorry, I yelled that one. (laughs) Number four is hell is for bad people. You heard that one? Hell is for bad people. There is this... uh, there's this clip in this movie uh, uh, called Bronson. Uh, uh, it's a, he's, a, he's a prisoner or an inmate in England in the 70s and 80s, whatever. It's played by Tom Hardy, and they're interviewing him, and he's talking about his past and how he grew up. And in this one clip, as he's talking about his upbringing, he goes on to say, I wasn't bad. I wasn't bad, bad. And I think when we look at hell, like hell's for bad people, we tend to kind of justify like, yeah, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm not I'm not bad, bad, right? Yeah, I I sin a little, but I'm not bad, bad, right? And so when it comes to hell being for bad people, I would totally agree with you if by bad people you mean all of us. Then yeah. You see, outside of Christ, 
we are all running from God, rebelling against God, exercising our free will to reject God. Romans goes on to say that no one is righteous, no one looks for God. Our problem outside of Christ, our problem is that we are just not a righteous people. Like outside of Christ, you cannot, we cannot stand before God and bank on our own stuff. Like, let me tell you why I'm awesome. Here's my resume. Like none of us can bank on that outside of Christ. However, the person and work of Jesus, right, where we lack in righteousness, Jesus meets us there. We, we talked about that last week with that fancy word, propitiation, that not only does Jesus take on and pay our sin, our debt, he then gives us his credit of righteousness. The lack of righteousness that we have is met with Jesus or is met by Jesus at the cross. That is the hope. So, uh, the question to the creed then is, well, got some myths. I get it. Maybe you have some other ones. Love to hear them. But the question that stands is, did Jesus descend into hell after dying on the cross? It's kind of the question that comes up because of that statement, right? It says that he descended into hell. He descended into dead, or into the dead. So did he descend into hell? The short answer is no. He did not descend into hell. So then we're going to look at John 19 and ultimately unpack, what does that mean? What do you mean he didn't descend? Well, we're going to look at that. Okay? Let's go to John 19, beginning in verse 28. That's what John writes. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, underline this, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We got to unpack what that means in light of what the creed states. And so we're going to walk through three things in light of that statement and how it pertains to the creed. The first two are very quick because they've been things I've been talking about last week when we talked about the substitution and the week before that when we looked at the incarnation. So the first two are going to be quick. So when it comes to the phrase, it is finished, what is he talking about? The first thing is the work of redemption. That is Jesus buying sinners out of bondage to their sin by his blood. We looked at the word redemption last week, that the word redemption means to buy back or to buy out of. And in the context of slavery, what is happening is that we are being bought out of our slavery, our bondage to sin. And what was the currency used to buy sinners out of bondage? His blood. That was redemption. The work of redemption was accomplished on the cross through the blood of Christ. Number two, the means or the work of reconciliation. That is, Jesus 
as our substitute reconciles sinners to the Father. The fence of separation that exists between man and God was now removed through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. It is as the writer in, uh, of Hebrews in chapter 4 says that you have access, confident access to the Father because of the work of the Son. That you can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Jesus has done. That is the work of reconciliation and it speaks to what we looked at last week. Jesus' primary mission was to reconcile man to God through the cross. So those are the two things. The third thing, where we'll spend most of our time, when he says it is finished, what do you mean? He's talking about the wrath, the full wrath of God. Jesus' spirit never went to hell. But... On the cross, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God that is poured out in hell. See, one more time. On the cross, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God that is poured out in hell. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Listen to the words of this Bible teacher. His name is John Calvin. This is what he says. After explaining, and he's talking about uh, this section of the creed, after explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, the creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God to teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price that he bore in his soul the tortures of a condemned and ruined man. Jesus' death on the cross completed the work that he was sent to do, to reconcile man to God through the shedding of his blood. As a result of that, here's what it cannot mean. When he cried out, it is finished. The work by which we are reconciled and redeemed, sinners are reconciled and redeemed to the Father. That's what he's talking about when he says, it is finished. The work that he was sent to do has now been complete. As a result, it cannot mean what some believe, that Jesus descended into hell to suffer further that he was then tortured by Satan himself. Maybe you've heard some of those positions. That he descended into hell, that he was tortured further, that he was personally tortured by Satan. He did not descend into hell, but he did experience the wrath of God that is poured out in hell. Number two, it does not mean that Christ released unrepentant sinners. then the statement on the cross would be incomplete. Not to mention the parallel passage, I think is in Matthew or in Luke, where it says that he is crucified between two thieves. One thief repents and Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in, any guesses? 
paradise. The dissension of Christ, when we read this section of the creed, the dissension of Christ into hell is the pouring out of God's wrath onto his son as our substitute. Isn't that the essence of hell? The pouring out of God's wrath on the wicked? Christ experienced that on the cross on behalf of sinners. On the cross, Jesus died. And he experienced hell. He experienced hell and he died. And his body lay in a tomb. And on the third day, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose again, defeating death, defeating sin, and defeating hell. Like, when you read through Revelation chapter 1, there's like spiritual smack talk in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, right, Jesus is talking to John, and he goes on to tell him it's verse 17 and 18. I'm just kind of paraphrasing it. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus is saying, I have the keys to death in Hades. But you know what I mean? Like He's kind of like spiritually smack-talking at that point, like, death doesn't rule over me. I, I rule over that, and I have the keys, <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus' death and resurrection proclaims victory to every single realm that he is Lord and that he is king. His resurrection breeds hope. And so, as we unpack all this, and I'm sure it's left more questions, which I'd love to hear, not yet. Um, It provides us with implications. Like, it's a good thing to understand and study theology, but we also need to understand that theology has implications. What we believe shapes how we live. And so when we look at the topic, the doctrine, the discussion of hell— Well, how does that shape how we live? Well, here are three things. And actually, these three things are the same ones as last week. The first one is that if you belong to Christ, the first implication is simply knowing God, that you are known by God, and as a result, you understand what he has done for you in Christ that ought to lead you to worship and praise and adoration and adopting a posture of humility because you know exactly what it cost. You know exactly what grace cost for you to be redeemed, for you to be reconciled. It is not just convenience, it is redemption. And if that, if knowing God is old news, it's something that people talk about at coffee shops. It's something that happened to you five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Then you do not understand grace. And you do not understand redemption. Because redemption is a costly grace that transforms the sinner. It's not stagnant. It's not convenient. So knowing God is one. Number two, it's hate for sin. 
the implication of this doctrine or of this discussion and, and for those who are in Jesus is a hatred for sin, that we hate the effects of our unrighteousness because we understand what it cost. Outside of Jesus, not one of us is righteous. Yet on the cross, Jesus meets us to provide us with his righteousness and pay our debt. And so when it comes to a hatred for sin, we hate the effects of our unrighteousness. We are passionate about confession and repentance. We are a people that confesses and repents of their sin regularly. Because in confession and repentance, we're forced to look at our sin, we're forced to be honest, and we're forced to see that grace is literally our only hope. We're a people passionate for killing our sin and leaving it behind, not making excuses for it, not saying, well, no one's perfect, not making excuses but actually addressing it, actually confessing it, repenting of it, and seeing transformation happen. And finally, number three, if the first two is, man, knowing God, having a hatred for our sin, number three would be making God known. Why? Because you know exactly what it costs. You know what redemption is. You know the distance of reconciliation. You know the cost of transformation. And so this isn't something that you just keep to yourself and it's still in your philosophy of convenience and consumerism. It is something that God has done for you in Christ. Therefore, you go out and share this message with people who don't know Jesus because you want them to know Jesus because there wasn't anything that you've done to earn it. Therefore, you want to go and share it. You should, you ought to. Wherever you are, you have been sent. You're a teacher, you've been sent to that school. You work in an office, you've been sent to that office. You work a part-time gig, you've been sent to that part-time gig. You're a student, you've been sent to that school as well. Wherever you are, you have been sent. This doctrine, everything that we've been talking about for the past three weeks, the incarnation, the substitution, even this section about Christ dying and uh, rising on the third day, so essentially his resurrection, all of this leads to an evangelistic message that is not private. It might be personal because it is the work of God in Christ for you. And as a result, you go and share the gospel. We talk about this a lot, right? You talk about what you love. Maybe we don't talk about Jesus that much because we really don't love him as much as we say we do. The cross is a convenience. Church is a convenience. Right? We'll even say things like, come to church with me so that my pastor can tell you or share with you the gospel. No, no, you're there. You share the gospel. Well, I don't really know it. Learn it. Christ died for sinners. Amen. Right? It's an evangelistic message because we desire to see more people come to know Jesus. Last week, I gave you an example of, uh, of those magicians, Penn and Teller. And, uh, and one of them this is a tall one. It's Penn? Right. So, Penn. There's a video online 
There's a video online of him, and it's nothing fancy. I think he's doing it on his phone. And there's a video online, and he is talking about... Um, let me actually go back to it. He's talking about this show that... Um, he's talking about a show that, that, that he performed, and there was a fan waiting for him. After the show, they, they go out, meet the fans, hang out, meet and greet kind of a thing, whatever. And he's been very open about being an atheist, 100%. And so he goes on to talk about, it's after the show, all these people are there, and he sees this one dude just waiting for him. Everybody, the crowd passes, one dude comes up to him, and he starts to give him compliments. Man, it was a great show, I really loved the performance, the magic was awesome, X, Y, and Z. And he says, hey man, I wanted you to have this. And he gives him a Bible, he gives him a Bible, shares the gospel with them, and I think he left him a note in his Bible. That was it. So in this video, Penn is talking about how much he respected that good man for having the courage to come up to him and share this good news of eternal life. And he goes on to say, if you have such good news is what he says. If you have such good news, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about it? That's rough. The message of the gospel is a message that, that is, is meant to be carried. It's not meant to just be held and protected. It's meant to be carried. So the implication of this doctrine, the implication of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus is not only one that is personal, knowing God, is not only one that really pierces our hearts where we have to be or where we are led to hate our sin, but it is also one that gets us off the seat to go and share the gospel with Jesus, of Jesus. I'll close with this. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a proclamation of victory over hell and Satan and a proclamation of hope to anyone who would turn and place their faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, this is uh, this, this doctrine, this discussion, sometimes it's really uncomfortable. And uh, it's uncomfortable because we are forced to do business with it. We are forced to evaluate the condition of our hearts. We are forced to uh, recognize our sin. We are forced to look at what we think or what we believe about redemption and reconciliation. And God, I just want to be open that that is often something that I totally forget about and that I dismiss and that I go hide in books about. I don't want to do that. I want to be somebody who's passionate about repentance. I want us to be a people who is passionate about confession and repentance because we know you, and we are known by you, and we understand the cost of grace as it pertains to redemption and reconciliation that we understand Jesus on the cross experienced hell in a matter of hours through the outpouring of your wrath onto him on behalf 
of sinners. That's a deeper message than something that is, uh, or that's a deeper reality than something as simple as a convenience. God, I pray that we would be a people who uh, worship you loudly this morning. I pray that we would be a people who repent of our sin to fix our eyes on Jesus. And I pray that we would be ascent people proclaiming the good news of your gospel. Even in, even in the midst of our imperfection and fear, that we would be a people that proclaims the good news of your gospel. And that is that Jesus came to save sinners of who we are the foremost. God, as we transition our time into tithes and offerings, Lord, I pray that this would be a reflection of your transforming grace in our lives. I pray that this would be a time where we give you our stuff by relinquishing control, trusting you, seeing the gospel advanced, and seeing more people come to know Jesus, even in the midst of our imperfections. God, I pray that we would be good stewards of these finances. I pray that you would be glorified in this time of worship. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.